All right, we're in the book of Judges. If you'd like to open your Bible there, we're in Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. The topic, God selects 300 men who lap up water like dogs to be Gideon's soldiers. The title of our message, Let Lap the Dogs of War. Let's have a word of prayer. No Shakespeare fans here, I take it, all right? If I have to explain it, it's no fun. Father, thank you so much for our morning. We appreciate the opportunity to lift our hearts together in a chorus of praise. And now, Lord, as your word is open before us, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that he would reveal to us grace on top of grace, your mercy that is new this morning and every morning, forgiveness of sin, Lord, and salvation. Pray, Lord, that if there are those here that don't know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would be confronted by the Spirit with their sin and with their need of saving, and that they would see Jesus lifted up on the cross and turn to him by faith, Lord, and be saved. Guide and direct us now, we pray, as we go through this text. We do it in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, Amen. 300 is a number you might associate with the Battle of Thermopylae. In 480 B.C., the Persians attacked a combined force of Greeks at Thermopylae, which was a strategic small mountain pass that controlled access to most of the rest of Greece. A group of 7,000 soldiers easily held off the several hundred thousand man army of Persia for two days. But then a Greek trader showed the Persians a secret passageway that allowed them to strike the Greek army from the rear. Most of the defenders retreated, A group of 300 Spartans stayed on the battlefield, fighting to the death, covering their fellow Greeks' retreat. This heroic act allowed the rest of the Greek army to escape capture or certain death. Commenting on this, one military historian said this, Both ancient and modern writers have used the Battle of Thermopylae as an example of the power of a patriotic army defending its native soil. The performance of the defenders is also used as an example of the advantages of training, equipment, and good use of terrain as force multipliers and has become a symbol of courage against overwhelming odds. I wanted to get that out of the way, especially if you've seen the 2006 fantasy action film 300, which I have not. Just thought I'd mention that. I wanted to get that out of the way so that it will not influence your thinking about the original 300 that we're going to read about today in the book of Judges. 600 years before Thermopylae, the success of Gideon's 300-man army had nothing to do with the power of patriotism or their native soil. Certainly, it had nothing to do with training, equipment, and the good use of terrain. It had everything to do with God showing his strength through Israel's weakness. Gideon started out with 32,000 men. God immediately had him pare down the force to only 10,000. God then pared down the 10,000 to 300, saying, By this 300 men, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. The great overriding lesson in this text is that it's not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord that we are to go forward serving him. I also find something else, something devotional for us to ponder. See if this makes sense to you. A large group of Israelites, the majority, either by their own choice or by God's, are eliminated from serving in the main battle. Later, they get involved serving in the mopping up after the main battle. 
A smaller group, the minority, the 300, are enlisted in the main battle. Ask yourself this morning as we work through this text, if God were eliminating and enlisting believers to serve him today, which group would I want to be in? This is a hard issue. Do I want to be eliminated from ministry, thankful that others are doing it, or do I want to be enlisted in it? I hope all of us would want to be among those enlisted rather than those eliminated. And to that end, I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, are you in the majority who are eliminated? Or number two, are you among the minority who are enlisted? Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 1 through 6 at the majority. On the reality show Survivor, there are a number of times each season that teams are chosen using what Jeff Probst calls a schoolyard pick. Do you remember those? Are they fond memories for you? Or were you always the kid chosen last to forever have your weak psyche scarred? (laughs) To go home weeping, crying at night, in your nightmares, wondering why, oh, why? When we talk today about those eliminated and those enlisted, please don't think of it as God picking the best players, those that are the most spiritual. We have a sense that God does a schoolyard pick. I need something done. Uh, You, you, you. All right, you're last. That's not it at all. As I indicated, those initially eliminated still found themselves serving the Lord. And those enlisted, we'll see, are certainly not chosen because they are holier. The application for us in asking these questions is, do I want to be among the enlisted? Or am I okay, even happy, with being eliminated most of the time? In other words, do you approach serving the Lord as if it were jury duty? Now, maybe you are into the tremendous responsibility and privilege of jury duty. Maybe you look forward to the notice coming in the mail. Quite often, I might add. But I'll tell you the truth. I'm just being honest with you. Maybe it makes me a bad citizen. When they dismiss me, I do a happy dance. (laughs) And then I get out of there as quickly as possible because whether you know it or not, The bailiff can come out and just pick people off the street for a jury. You don't have to have jury duty. If they get to a point where they don't have enough people in the jury pool in order to put a jury together, they come out and they they get people. They they do. So don't ever go to the courthouse just for fun. (laughs) Don't hang around there at all. Send a proxy if you have to go. Unless you like serving on a jury, and then I'd like to talk to you afterwards. But anyway... As a Christian, I should not have that attitude when it comes to serving the Lord. And so with all that in mind, let's see how this story unfolds, beginning in verse 1, of course. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. Gideon had been given a nickname, Jeroboam, after he had destroyed the altar of Baal at Ophrah and burned its idol. It means let Baal contend with him. It was at first a challenge to Baal to avenge himself against Gideon. Uh, The citizens, the men of the city wanted to kill Gideon for destroying their altar. And Gideon's dad said, hey, if he's offended anyone, it's Baal. So let Baal strike him dead, basically. And when Baal didn't do anything, the name stuck as a kind of superhero alter ego. Look. On the hills, it's Jeroboam, you know, that kind of a thing. It tells us that the Israelites were superstitious 
and not really on board with a true worship of Jehovah because their hero wasn't the angel of the Lord who was leading Gideon. Their hero was Jerubal, someone they thought Baal feared to fight. God was faithful to his people when they were faithless. He delivered them while they remained idolaters. There's no talk in this story of a massive repentance and turning to the Lord. God chose Gideon to deliver his people, and he delivered them right where they were at. Our God is an awesome God. Now, we'll see that all the Israelites who were with Gideon numbered 32,000. That's impressive. But they were outnumbered four to one, and they had no weapons and no armor. So verse 2 says, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. People, money, gear, we always think more of all of them will further the gospel. The apostles and the disciples that they made in the first century turned the world upside down for Jesus with no resources except those that were spiritual. Peter and John could say to the lame man, silver and gold, I have none. But what they did have was Jesus beyond all the world's treasures. If God isn't giving us as a church or you as a Christian more material resources, it's because we don't need them, regardless the good that we think we would do with them. There's a fine line, especially in church life, of, you know... Like, take, for example, a building project. Many of you have been through a building project where all of a sudden everything is about the building and getting more money for the building and raising your goal and all of that kind of a thing. And, and I'm not saying that's always wrong. We, we approach things differently here. But let's say, you know, I don't want to say that's always wrong. But I think it can cross a line where it becomes more of a human effort than a God effort. And then at the end, when you say, look what God has done, you really should say, look what we have done. We put pressure on each other to give more and because we had this goal and, and all of that. And um, God wants the glory. And so whatever your project and however you're going to provide for it, you need to build into it safeguards that show that this was God and not man. Because man can do incredible things uh, without God. And then put a label on it and get God involved. But we, we really want to be led by God. And so resources are one way that God guides us. Uh, Chuck Smith used to say, where God guides, God provides. And if God isn't providing, then maybe he's not guiding. As good as that project may seem, as wonderful as it may seem, as much as we could think it would further the gospel, God is into making smaller things give him greater glory. I'm guessing Gideon wasn't too excited about the prospect of whittling down the size of his fighting force. Nevertheless, this was not a negotiation. It was God revealing his divine strategy for the fight against the Midianites and their allies. And so verse 3, Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. If any of the men were afraid to go to battle, they were to be granted an immediate honorable discharge. When the dust of their leaving settled, the odds were now at 14 to 1. The law of Moses prescribed reasons men could refuse military service. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Deuteronomy 20 to you. Just listen closely. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, 
Do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be, when you are on the verge of battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. Then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. The officer shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. Because Israel was being oppressed and occupied by enemy invaders, probably no one could really honestly claim the first three reasons in Deuteronomy 20. They were about maintaining a normal, stable life, something the Israelites hadn't been able to do for the past seven years. Fear, however, was very real, so that it wouldn't spread through the ranks, those who were afraid were dismissed. You see, God didn't need, he never needs the numbers. And so he says, say, so here's a group of people, you guys want to go home, go home. And if you're afraid, go home, because all you're going to do is make it more difficult for the guys who aren't afraid. And so these were reasons that you could have an honorable discharge from military service. Now, these guys are going to be called into service after the initial attack to chase after the enemy once he's on the run. So don't think of these guys as losers or as being rejected by God. He eliminated them, but it was based on an out that he provided in the law. We always have our ideas about what is more spiritual in the Christian life. We could look at a decision and say, this is more spiritual, this is less spiritual. But if it's an area of freedom that the Lord has given us where we can choose either way, then that we can't make a judgment like that on other people. If God gives a, a decision, let people make it and don't hold them to a higher standard than God holds them to. It's a matter for them to decide with the Lord. Verse 4, But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. There's a series of jokes about how many people it takes to change a light bulb. Are you familiar with those? This almost sounds like that. Here's one. How many polite New Yorkers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Both of them. Get it? Yeah. Gideon must have been wondering just how many men it would take for God to get the glory. The law provided four reasons for you to eliminate yourself. This next elimination was strictly God's doing. He designed an elimination test, but at first didn't tell anyone what he was looking for. Gideon was to observe, and then God would tell him to eliminate based on something he observed in their behavior. So verse 5, he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. 
How do you get 10,000 men to all drink at the same time? You ever think about, I think about weird things like that when I'm reading the scripture. That's a lot of people to drink all at once. This is totally a guess on my part because it's not in the text, but I think God made them thirsty. Suddenly they were all to a man parched and wanting to get a drink of that fresh running water because this is the test that he had set before them. I hope in heaven we'll be able to look back on our lives and see all of the times that God gently manipulated circumstances to try to lead us or to protect us. All the times that what seemed like a weird coincidence was really God's providence. You can, you've probably had some of those where you run into somebody because you went the wrong way or you, know, you avoided an accident or something like that. I think God does that all of the time. He just doesn't need to tell us about it. Now, there were two kinds of water drinkers in Gideon's army, lappers and kneelers. And that was going to determine the final number of Gideon's men. Verse 6, And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Finally, Gideon had his army. 9,700 men were kneelers. It wasn't 32,000. It wasn't 22,000. But it... 9,700 men might hold their own, except that God was going to dismiss the kneelers and not the lappers. And so the Lord said to Gideon, verse 7, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Now, the day had started so favorably. You ever have a day just start, man, my devotions were just so rich. I just, God was really ministering to me. And by the end of the day, you're in one of the Psalms. <laughs> Psalm 88, wondering what happened and how you'll ever get out of it. The day started great for Gideon. He blew the ram's horn and 32,000 men from several tribes rallied to his side. He probably thought more would be coming. Just a few minutes earlier... The men of his own city wanted to kill him for destroying the altar to Baal. And then he blows the trumpet and 32,000 people from all over with no weapons or no armor say, we'll fight with you. Let's go. Let's do this thing. I mean, this is supernatural. God must be at work. End of the day, 300 lapdogs is what he's left with. You know what a lapdog is, right? It's not a kick dog, which we should never say. We should never use that terminology. God forbid. I never liked little dogs until we got a Shiba Inu and then my heart was warmed. We had huskies all the time, which I wouldn't recommend for anyone, anytime, anywhere, unless you're in Alaska, unless you're an Inuit Indian in Alaska. Huskies will destroy your house and your yard. They will destroy your concrete yard. There's nothing you can do to protect yourself against Siberian huskies. You know why they look so happy all the time? So that you won't shoot them. We, can, we had a series of huskies. I don't know what on this planet convinced me to keep buying them. But, uh, man, it was monstrous. Anyway. <laughs> Let's pause to draw some application from the majority who were eliminated. You can likewise be eliminated from serving God, or at least from certain ways of serving God. We read the passage in Deuteronomy that listed four reasons an Israelite could eliminate himself. The first three had to do with house, home, and family concerns. Those same concerns can eliminate you and I from certain ministries, or they can at least limit our commitment to ministering. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
He says, I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. He who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and spirit. She who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. And so Paul is pointing out that life with a family is a lot tougher than life without a family if you intend to serve the Lord in any way. Plus, tough times for believers were ahead in Corinth, and Paul was encouraging them to make life choices that were consistent with tough times. The responsibilities of family would weigh heavy on them, especially when that persecution hit. Those who had spouses and families would be most uh, distracted and most devastated. In the movies, the hero's weakness is always his girlfriend or wife or children. In the recent film, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, Lex Luthor kidnaps Martha Kent and almost kills Lois Lane. As you're watching it, you think, really, Superman? You haven't figured out that they're going to kidnap your mom? Come on, what kind of Superman are you? But those kinds of things, kidnapping his loved ones, it's almost worse than using kryptonite. Because of its effect. Because not only do you weaken Superman, but now you can do whatever you want with him and get him to do your bidding. In the upcoming Spider-Man movie, there's a scene I've seen where the vulture tells Spider-Man he's going to kill everybody that he loves. If you're a superhero, if you come into superhero powers this afternoon, you're going to be much worse off if you have a family. So be a loner, be a Logan, the Wolverine, and just, you know, on your own. But they even got him at the end. But anyway... Paul isn't suggesting that there's anything wrong with establishing a home and family. In fact, it's the same Apostle Paul who in Ephesians tells you how to be a great husband and a great wife and how to be great children and those kinds of things. And so it isn't about denying those things. This isn't saying it's more spiritual to remain single. He's just pointing out the obvious. You're going to be distracted from and not able to do as much for the Lord if you have a wife and family. So make those choices with that in mind. Now, the fourth reason an Israelite might eliminate himself was fear. Do you have fear of being used by God? I'll bet you do, because I do. Fear keeps us from sharing Jesus and from serving Jesus. Rather than eliminate ourselves because of fear, we ought to eliminate our fear. Our fear can come from a sense that we aren't ready, that we aren't knowledgeable enough, that we aren't holy enough. Well, neither were Gideon's men, yet God was going to use them. It wouldn't be by their readiness or their knowledge or their holiness, not by their might nor power, but by his spirit. I mean, when he, even at the beginning of the day, when, he, when these 32,000 show up, they, they don't have any time for training or preparedness or readiness. There's not even an orientation. God's saying, hey, I'm going to use some people from this group. Whether they're ready, whether they're holy, whether they're prepared, this is what I'm going to do. And, and so we can't use those excuses. We have the Spirit indwelling us. And we can ask any time. And God has promised to give us the Spirit in greater measure. So we need to believe God and let His promise of the Spirit overcome our fear of serving Him. Now in our story, God eliminated some of the men Himself. How might He do something like that today? Well, one way is by the gifts He chooses to give you. 
God the Holy Spirit is described as granting spiritual gifts to believers. He does it, and we're told he does it as he wills, not as we will. And so obviously, if you're gifted in some area, you're going to spend a lot of time ministering in that area and not in other areas. And so there's a kind of a a spirit elimination, as it were. Now, the men eliminated by God from Gideon's army would still be called into service, supporting the 300 by mopping up after the initial battle. So again, don't think of them as second class or that God was preferring some over others. This is just the way it shook out. Verse 23, yeah, in verse 23 of this chapter, it says, And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all of Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. Those are the men who were dismissed but now are called into service. So you may eliminate yourself. You may be eliminated from certain things, but you always remain a servant wherever you are. And you can go from eliminated to enlisted whenever God sees fit. None of those who were eliminated from Gideon's army were in sin, but... I should mention that sin is a way we can eliminate ourselves or are eliminated by God from serving him. We pull ourselves out of battle when we yield to sin. When, we, when our sin finds us out, we have to retreat from the battle. Um, that's something we do to ourselves. Now, I can think of at least two possible reactions to all this talk about being eliminated. One reaction would be a sense of relief that I'm too busy, too involved in my everyday life to be on the front lines of ministry. Another second reaction would be a desire to alter my lifestyle as much as possible in order to get more out on the front lines of ministry. And I would recommend that we pick door number two. And I think as Christians, that's what we really want to do. Sometimes we just get ourselves in a tangle because we're not thinking ahead to some, by some of the decisions that we've made. Verses 7 and 8, are you among the minority who are enlisted? With apologies to other branches of the military, Time magazine named Navy SEALs the top elite fighting force in the world. It was in an article in which they listed their top 10 elite forces, both current and in the history of modern warfare. Israeli special forces made the list at number 9. Now, there's a tendency to see Gideon's 300 as a sort of Israeli special forces. Were they? Let's read again how they were enlisted. Verse 7, Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. It's only natural for us to want to come to a conclusion as to why lappers are preferred over kneelers. It's been suggested that by lapping the water cupping their hands and bringing it to their mouth, they could remain alert to what was happening around them. And so they would get the water. Is that a Midianite? You know, that kind of a thing. So you, whereas the other guys are just face planting in the water, you know. And so that is the working theory that 90% of the commentators have. And they insist that God designed the test in order to select only those men who maintained greater overall sense of military preparedness or vigilance. And while that makes a lot of sense, it absolutely does not fit the context. In fact, it contradicts what God is teaching us. God was whittling down Gideon's forces in order that he, and not they, would get the glory for the victory over the Midianite alliance. If you say that these 300 men were the most prepared and possessed the greatest vigilance, then you make them a Israeli special forces. And people look at them and say, there are the 300. There are the dog soldiers. 
that kind of a thing. God's test was arbitrary. Whether you lapped water or knelt with your face in the river, it revealed nothing about your military prowess. God's foreknowledge was that there were fewer lappers, only 300 who would drink that way. These were not a few good men. They weren't going around saying the only easy day was yesterday or always ready, always there, or death from above or any number of other slogans that military uh, forces have. They weren't those who completed rigorous physical and mental training in order to qualify. There was absolutely nothing special about these men that set them apart from their fellow Israelites. They weren't, as Agent J says in Men in Black, the best of the best of the best, sir. They just weren't. They were simply 300 random guys out of 32,000 men so that God could say, all right, that's enough. I'll, I'll leave you with 300 guys. Could be any of these guys, but it's these 300. Now watch how I'm going to get the victory. And so verse 8, so the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. The idea here is that the 300 outfitted themselves before the rest left so that each of them had a trumpet. And that's going to be important to the battle because not only do we only have 300 guys, the Lord's going to design an incredible, weird strategy for beating the Midianites that involves trumpets. But think it's kind of humorous to me. It's like, okay, I'm among the 300. Hey, don't forget to leave me a trumpet. I'm going to need that trumpet tomorrow when we go against over 100,000 Midianites. That's going to really do me some good. Now, the rest of the men, as I pointed out, didn't go home. They went back to camp where they would be ready to serve when called upon. I want to have us hear once again the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 20. So let me read the first four verses. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be, when you are on the verge of battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. And do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Four to one odds, then it was 14 to one. Finally, it was 450 to one. Incredible odds that Gideon's army faced. You and I always, every day of our Christian life, face greater odds. We can't even calculate them numerically because our foes are supernatural. I always love, I don't understand numbers, but I love it when somebody says, the odds of this are one with a 10 to the millionth zero behind it. And that's like having a quarter in the state of Texas, you know, and, and they, these incredible odds. And you think, wow, my mind was just blown. But what I'm telling you this morning is the odds you face every day as a Christian couldn't even be calculated. They are so overwhelming because you face principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. How long do you think you're going to maintain yourself against those satanic forces. Not at all. Yet at the same time, we need never fear or lose heart because our great high priest is with us. Think of it that way. Think of all the forces of hell marshaled together 
every evil thing that can be imagined, plus death and hell itself and Satan, and then have Jesus appear on a white horse, how do you think that's going to go? Well, Jesus has already won that victory. And so if he is our great high priest, he's with us to the extent that we stand in his strength. He's the one who fights, not us. I hate trite overuse sayings, but I'm compelled to say that one with God is a majority. It's been around for a long time. It's trite, but it's accurate. One with God is a majority. As you reflect on this text, determine whether or not in your heart you want to be among those enlisted by God to serve him. And then ask him for a refreshing of the Holy Spirit upon you. Let's pray.